open your Bible today to Psalm 20, and we'll take a look at it first in this uh, Pew Bible uh, for a brief remembrance and reflection on something that's really distinctive on this day when we honor these heroes and think about what it means, the reality of um, our trust in God as a nation is so diminished today in the public square because so many in elected office don't honor that reality. So today, one of the unique challenges we all have is to, is to realize that in God's sight, truth never changes. doesn't matter who's in power. The truth prevails. Amen? And just a brief reading on page 628 in the Bibles that are there in the chairs. Um, just reminded there's much about this that is just so so timely and powerful for anybody praying for the country, as David Berry just led us in a prayer. Psalm chapter 20, verses 1 through 5, is a good sort of a reminder of, of why we should pray for our country, even in the most ominous of times, in the most perilous of times, in the most, uh, for many, uh, distressing of times. This actual, this psalm actually addresses the distress that's in the hearts of people reminding us as we saw as we closed last week talking about ascending out of anxiety our our goal last week is to send you forth with uh, equipment to tackle anxiety proactively and that includes praying for things that seem so far beyond anything we could ever touch with our human ability so psalm chapter 20 verses 1 to 5 We'll read these aloud together, these five verses. Just remain seated, but we'll read together from God's Word. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice. Selah. May he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation, and in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Can I hear an amen? And we are, are grateful, we're grateful, so grateful that we can share this knowing that in every season, distressful or not, the Lord invites us to bring those, uh, those burdens and those requests to him as we, again, as we today express our honor and gratitude for all the patriots serving in the past. And I think it's a timely reminder that under the stress and duress so many are under now, these current men and women faith, facing danger for the sake of others, often sacrificially in ways we can't even fully understand, including law enforcement officers and leaders, uh, they need encouragement and prayer from the people of God. Well, I want to also then ask you to turn all, another section of Psalms. is Psalm 89, verse 15 and 16. And Psalm 89, 15 and 16 is a composite Bible verse that beautifully summarizes both the current call of God upon the church to be a people of praise and the connection that our praises have, our praising God together has, with great events in the life 
of the chosen people of God in that era that we call the Old Covenant, but we all should always bear in mind that that God, the covenant-keeping God, had a purpose in that covenant to be fulfilled in the New Covenant. So really, a true follower of the Lord is one who embraces the full magnitude of blessing in the covenants, in all the covenants that God has decreed. And here we have in Psalm 89, verse 15, Blessed are the people who know the joyful sound. That uh, distinctive translation from the King James Bible contains a a clue to something I want to walk through with you today, and that is an insight into the feasts of Israel in a general way, and specifically today, this is the day marked in the calendar as Pentecost Sunday, and because at Pentecost and the pivotal role that it plays in the magnitude of this covenant pattern of God, we're going to look at that in light of this blessing that Psalm 89.15 gives us. Now, I mentioned it in the King James Bible, the joyful sound. Would you say the joyful sound with me? The joyful sound. Whenever I read it, I think about the, the, the covenant principle that this church reflects, and I believe we're called to reflect in all of our lives, and that is a response to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even when we're facing great adversity and trial, elicits a joyful response out of our hearts that is part of our our battle axe and our weapons of war. Let me put it in a different way. Psalm 89.15 is telling us that there is a rich biblical heritage of joyful response to God no matter what the circumstances on the ground are around us. But it is not the kind of praise that denies these circumstances. On the contrary, it's the kind of praise that faces the circumstances boldly and confidently realizing that the Lord has put his people strategically in places where their praises are part of what honors God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine his lights. Paul put it that way in Philippians 2.16, and it's relevant for Psalm 89.15 because Psalm 89.15 is both simple and quite textured in its connection with the past. So let's take the simple part of it first and just say it again. Blessed are those who know the joyful sound. The follow-up phrase in Psalm 89.15 in your Bible is, they will walk in the light of your countenance, King James, or presence, New International Version. Now these, now these wonderful, these translations are getting at a wonderful truth in the Hebrew. Blessed are those who are actively, regularly a part of a praising people, a praising community. And and the blessing, one of many blessings that he promises is, as we're praising God, as we're part of of a people of a joyful sound, we will walk, he says, in the light of his countenance. There's a connection in the Bible between 
illuminating light of hope and peace and encouragement and people who boldly go in to the places that are not easy to face sometimes with the praises of God in their mouth. The 149th Psalm echoes it in a slightly different imagery when it says, with a with the high praises resounding from their hearts and a two-edged sword in their hand, they will advance. In, in Isaiah chapter 2, there's a portrayal of the kingdom of God that will come in the days of Messiah. And the ultimate fulfillment of it, in, still in the future, is that, is that nations, groups, ethnic groups from all parts of the globe will flow toward the Messiah there will be a time when God demonstrates the magnitude of his son's death, burial, and resurrection in the great harvest of souls where people from every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation under heaven are gathered at the throne and they're saying, worthy, worthy is the lamb who's redeemed us by his blood. Now these images taken together, show us first that God has a bright future for his people, but we're going to see now the second part of Psalm 89.15 is that he puts the pattern of this great plan in some wonderfully diverse examples of the Old Testament and embeds them in such a way that visually we can see it. Really, it even means we can kind of see it and taste it, figuratively speaking. So in Isaiah's great portrayal of this coming great conquest of, of the Messiah's kingdom, he concludes it by saying, now, if you believe that God's word truly is going to touch the ethnic groups across the planet, if you truly believe in the Great Commission, that this good news of the gospel shall be proclaimed in all the world as a witness, and then shall the end come. If you believe that, Matthew 24, 14, then... then Isaiah 2.5 says, you can walk in the light of the Lord. Come let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's an invitation we can share. Say it with me. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Say it one more time. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Now, they understood this light, this illumination, as not only reflecting a natural reality, but a kind of light that they knew in the sacred tabernacle in the wilderness and later in Solomon's temple where there was an illumination of the lampstand and these sacred pieces of furniture that God ordained in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And, and the purpose of that light was to show that there is a kind of illumination from God that one can never have unless we personally acknowledge who he is. So the very core issue of real worship is acknowledging the living God for who he is. Understanding that the Lord God has not only designed us and created us, but that he has a plan for us. And then that 15th verse of Psalm 89, look at the 15th and 16th verse now in your own Bible. Whatever translation you're using, and notice that the last half of Psalm 89, 15 says that you'll walk in the light of his presence. It's worded toward the Lord as a prayer. Walk in the light of your presence, O Lord. And then verse 16, read verse 16, and I'm, I'm reading the New International Version in 
Psalm 89, 16, and note it in your Bible. They rejoice in your name all day long. Woo! They celebrate your righteous all day long. You mean in the toughest place of my day? You mean when somebody's treated me really badly? You mean when, when, the, when the, the, the very rug got pulled out from under me on some, some project or some deal, financial arrangement I was making, and now it's all gone? What do you mean all day long? Come on, friends. Let's have some fun Memorial Day weekend. Shout it out. All day long. Oh, yeah. All day long. So God says... If these people know the joyful sound, they, they walk in the light, this illumination that was, that was symbolized so beautifully in the tabernacle with the, candle, the candlestick as the priest trimmed the lamps before the Lord. This illumination of God is embedded in Psalm 89. It's a covenant psalm, by the way. It begins with describing God's blessing, the covenant of David. And then it says they'll rejoice all day long. Come on, say it one more time. All day long. Ooh, how many of you believe that? Take that. I mean, if we just close it up now and go home, take that with you, okay? All day long. But because of that, the, the entire understanding of the feast and how they would affect the people was anchored in pivotal events described for us primarily first in Exodus chapter 4, and then they're repeated 38, 39 or so years later when, when Moses declared the, quote, second law, Deuteronomy, the, the repeating of the law, in that classic place of Deuteronomy chapter 5, and we'll see a little piece of that in a minute. But first we need to understand that, that everything spoken about this joyful sound, this, this proclamation, is because of the revealed identity of God that the feasts of Israel were designed to portray to them. Now, in themselves, they're a fascinating of, of connecting God's eternal plan with the fulfillment of what Jesus did on the cross and in the resurrection and the ascension, and then there is a future element of all of the various feasts. Now, today, we're just going to delve into a little bit into one of the feasts, and and, and, and to start with, we, we need to remember that all of these feasts, including the one we will touch on today, are expressions and reflections of how a people gained their identity from the God who delivered them out of the land of slavery and brought them into a promise of a promise. That is, the wilderness generation had a promise. They, they could not access because they were in because of their disobedience they ended up spending 38 years in that wandering phase and then the era of entry to the land and the future kingdom but in all of those aspects the the thing that stands out about this this unique people was they weren't chosen by God for any particular qualities they had they were chosen to demonstrate the power of his covenant and it turns out that God chose people that then he used in some phenomenal ways across the span of the centuries. And the, and the actual existence of the Jewish people and their in century, century after century, millennia of suffering and adversity and trial 
as a people, the reforming of, a, of an actual state, an actual political entity in 1948, and many other aspects of Israel show that the Almighty God demonstrated His mighty power in covenant love by choosing people who in themselves had nothing instinctive to honor, offer God. Even their founder, Jacob, later named Israel, comes off as a pretty unsavory, unattractive character if you really read the story with eyes wide open. He's a heel catcher from the get-go. He's a deceiver. He's a, he's a liar. He's a skillful, cunning manipulator. And God, God, the covenant-keeping God, who spoke to Jacob's grandfather when he said, I am El Shaddai, I am Almighty God, and I will make my covenant with you. And then God, the covenant-keeping God, makes that grandson of Abraham into a man who learns the hard way to wrestle with God. And in the wrestling becomes a mighty champion of the very faith for which he could never have qualified in, his, in himself. And his very name, Israel, one who, the one who wrestles, the one, the, the prevailing one, the one who wrestles, veils with God. And there's even an irony in the very name Israel because you can't say that without a twinkle in your eye. He wrestled with God, but who prevailed? Almighty God brought his servant into a place of, now we, now we fast forward over 480 years when we come to this text, and let's read it aloud. God is now saying to them, because of that great covenant, because of the covenant-keeping God, there are ways that God wants you to know him that you could never tap into, apart from him closing himself. And that's the secret of the feast. Why these seven feasts of Israel? Because God shows not only a verbal and audible way and not only an inscribed way, but he chose a visual or dramatic way to embed in this unique people for all generations. Seven feasts would remind them of his ways and of his covenant love. Let's read the text from Deuteronomy loud together, could you please? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, would you turn in your Bible to, uh, to Leviticus chapter 25 and uh, just notice that in Leviticus chapter 25, uh, the Lord speaks about a, a process of bringing his people into their covenant purpose. And he says in, in Leviticus 25, 2, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land, I'm going to give you the land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord for six years sow your fields and for six years prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest a Sabbath to the Lord. So from the very beginning, the sabbatical principle established a kind of order, a kind of God-given order. And 
in varying degrees, they were learning the pattern of how God keeps covenant. Now then turn to Deuteronomy chapter 16, and notice also in your Bible, in Deuteronomy 16, that that very pattern becomes a part of the unveiling of these feasts of Israel. And in Deuteronomy chapter 16, the beginning of that series of feasts, of course, is the Passover. And he says that in the month of Aviv, a month that is described as the beginning of months, in Deuteronomy 16, you'll celebrate the Passover of the Lord your God, because in the month of Aviv, again, here, God connects everything he shows them back to that, I delivered you from the land of slavery. I brought you out of bondage. I delivered you to be my people. In Exodus 19.6, he says that you might be a peculiar treasure unto me, a covenant people. And then, again in Exodus 19, we won't get to that one, but in Exodus 19, they are given the law of God. They are brought to the place called, they are brought to the place that is, that is God's assigned place to reveal his law. And there at the foot of Mount Sinai, they experience in a phenomenal way what the Bible later says is the beginning of wisdom. And that is, this nation, so mightily delivered by God and redeemed, begins to experience the awe for who God really is. And your Bible's open in Deuteronomy 16, so go down to verse 9, and we kind of jump right ahead into the place that this day is commemorated and understood across the centuries as a day to remember the purpose of Pentecost. And we find it in Deuteronomy 16, verse 9, that, that this Shavuot is the way that uh, the Hebrews said it there, coinciding with the event that I described at Sinai where, where the mountain shook with mighty power and the giving of the law with heavy rains upon the mountain after the volcanic eruption subsided, that giving of the law becomes associated with the wind and fire of God's unleashed power. So in Shavuot, the, the uh, commemoration of this feast becomes associated all through the years with an understanding. God gave us his entire revealed will so that we would be prepared for the wind and fire of his glorious grace and power. If you have your Bible in Deuteronomy 16, verse 9, you jump right into kind of the... Um, the essence of how that feast day was set apart. Count off seven weeks from the time that you begin to put the, suck, the sickle to the standing grain. So there is a specific instruction repeated here from Leviticus that you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, that is, 
starting with the time they first put the sickle to the grain. Now, this connects in the springtime. The earliest harvest was barley for the Israelites. The latter harvest was wheat. And from the moment the first sickle is put in on the Feast of Firstfruits, just, just uh, three days after Passover, that becomes the starting point counting of 49 days plus one to this next feast that is, that is indicated there. In fact, the, the, the part of this that seems a little odd to us at times in our American mind is that we tend to kind of gloss over a lot of these, these nitty-gritty details um, as if they're somewhat irrelevant. And, and yet, what, what is notable about the way God dealt with them was there were certain things he embedded in these feast experiences that were designed centuries later, even to this very day, to bring people back to an awareness that God Almighty in his covenant love had very specific ways of preparing his people to do what we started with today, and that is make a joyful sound. When I had you in Psalms, one of the translations that's intriguing in the Amplified Bible brings out Psalm 89.15, that those who know the meaning of the feast, that is, the blessing of the joyful sound is anchored in the festive historical tradition of Israel. So the idea was, if the feasts are meaningful to these people, they will truly rejoice. Now, we carry it over to the New Testament, and we say, understanding what Christ did for us in his death, burial, and resurrection means that on any day, even the darkest and most difficult day, you know your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is alive, conquering, and is your great high priest. And therefore, one of the offerings we give our Savior is the offering of a joyful praise. Now, what I love about this is that both Old Testament and New Testament work together in beautiful symmetry. One of my recent bike rides, I just had one of these kind of little brief epiphanies. I was coming around a curve pretty fast, and I happened to see it was a very quiet tree-lined place, and I just happened to look aside for a moment and saw this blue jay just kind of dancing from one branch to another. And for some reason, I couldn't get that blue jay out of my mind. As I was riding down the road, I got to thinking about the fact that the, design, the almighty creator who designed a blue jay with a perfect symmetrical form, with exquisite detail and beauty, and yet exists in these trees just fluttering in a quiet place where no one is noticing, is the same God who designed these feasts and these principles in the Old Testament to always be there bringing the symmetry and the color and the diversity and the beauty of his design so that anybody at any point in time can learn to be still and know that he is God by dwelling upon and understanding the reason for the feast. Now here's how God said it in, in, um, in Leviticus, from the day you brought a sheaf of the wave offering plus 50 days, to present an offering of new grain to the Lord, that the purpose of this, this time of feasting was to bring a wheat harvest testimony of trust. We're at the beginning of the wheat harvest, and at the 50-day mark after first fruits, 
where barley loaves have been waved before the Lord. Now, 50 days later, two loaves of wheat, the beginning of harvest, is presented unto God as a way of doing what Psalm 89.15 said, making a joyful sound of expected praise for the coming harvest. And in that two loaves being presented to God, he repeats again, again, what we have already seen today, and read it aloud again, because God emphasizes it again in Deuteronomy. Read it aloud with me. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. So be careful, he says, to obey these decrees. Now, to bring some clarity about how this became so so important for the people of that time, um, and I see the sizing of my fonts on part of that didn't work out right, but, but, the, but, but to get a clarity about it, there are three different ways that this feast is spoken of in general terms, and it's all about the same feast. The Hebrews call it Shavuot. Um, the literal word for this feast, Shavuot, means the weeks. So it's a feast named for the exact pattern of counting those seven weeks plus one day. And then, of course, in the Greek language, it becomes the day of Pentecost. Now, now the significance of that for Shavuot, or the Pentecost, is that this happens to be the, the fourth out of a series of seven feasts. Now, that places it in the very center between three spring feasts, early spring feasts, and three fall feasts. And that center point is important because what really happens in Pentecost in the second chapter of Acts when the, when the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the early church and tongues of fire appear upon the heads of those that are in that upper room and they spoke with other tongues and, uh, and, and gave utterance to that miracle of God within them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And the fire and wind, the, the rushing wind came into that house is a notable and unrepeatable miracle in the book of Acts marking the launching of the era of God's people being the redeemed body of Christ in the earth. God now, we might say, has a new loaf. The Apostle Paul calls the church in 1 Corinthians 11 a loaf. When he says, remember, when you partake of the communion meal together, that all of us, in a sense, when we break the loaf, we're being reminded that in Christ, because of his victorious resurrection over sin, hell, death, and the grave, that you and I are part of one body, one loaf. And yet, the wonderful fact of Pentecost is showing that that one loaf incorporates the two loaves, Jew and Gentile. So that those who had formerly been excluded, as Ephesians chapter 2 says, Jesus in his resurrection has removed that wall of partition so that in his resurrection glory, those who were two have now become one. Shavuot, Pentecost, Feast of Weeks, speaks of that. So we have the spring feast or three, the Passover unleavened bread, the first fruits. Then you have the fall fruit feast, the trumpets, the day of atonement, and the tabernacle. And each of those have typical significance about the Lord Jesus. And then this, in this midpoint, this, this uh, late May, early June, 
this time of year. The traditional observances of it in the Hebrew culture have readings from the Torah because God gave the Torah in Shavuot and the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is read in these uh, synagogue gatherings and why? Because it is, it is well documented that Ruth was in that place of finding gleanings from the field having come to the land of Israel as an outsider, as a foreigner, that Ruth was a Moabite, and she's come back to the land of Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, and the mother-in-law has said to the two daughters-in-law, you don't need to come with me, there's no need for you now, you need to go back to your homeland, hopefully you'll find husbands there, but Ruth clings to her mother-in-law and says, and says, wherever you go, I will go, and your God will be my God, and your people will be my people, And, and so we have this, this beautiful, uh, moving portrait of, of an outsider in such an early phase of Israel's history, a complete outsider from Moab who would have no claim to the covenant promises that Naomi's kindred represented, and yet because of a heart awakened to the mighty covenant love of God, Ruth becomes part of the story of this of this. What Shavuot shows us as two loaves, God's plan that all people on the face of the earth will be blessed by this wonderful, these wonderful realities. Well, with that in mind, let's just read aloud together what it says in Deuteronomy about why they practiced it, and then we can apply it forward in the sense of new covenant reality. What does it mean for us that not only Jesus our Passover, Jesus, the giver of unleavened bread to his people, the bread of life, not only Jesus in resurrection glory being the first fruits, the wave offering before Almighty God, but now in Pentecost, the Lord Jesus promises the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that any hungry heart can be filled with the Holy Spirit and know him. And we read the Old Testament wording to understand the New Testament significance for us today. Read aloud with me here from the screen from Deuteronomy. Keep the with a freewill offering from your hand, which you shall give as the Lord your God blesses you, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter. Now, when we think of it like this, we understand that the giving of this feast joined together both the giving of the law, the wind and fire anticipating the day of Pentecost, centuries in the future, that could only be fulfilled through the burial and resurrection of Jesus, and all together packed into this one feast, number four out of seven, the pivotal feast. The sense that just as we see a beautiful bird fluttering through the trees, and symmetrically those two wings give contour and order and beauty to the flight of that bird. So the feasts have two wings, the three spring feasts, the three fall feasts, and at the center point is this moving of the church forward, the Pentecost, the Spirit-filled church, the people of God filled with the Holy Spirit. And what are we called to carry? We're called to carry forth the full New Testament impact of what God gave.
and in the giving of the Torah and the wind and fire that anticipates Pentecost, they were given a heritage to carry nothing less than the glory of God. Again, for the sake of time, read aloud with me. Deuteronomy 5, 24. Read it with me if you would. The Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. Awesome reality about Pentecost is that Almighty God decided, yes, he decided, that they would need, they would need to be prepared for this mighty grace work that would come into their hearts. He even embedded waiting, waiting in a symbolic way in those 10 days in Acts chapter 1 where we saw about four weeks ago that the appearances of Jesus came to conclusion as, as he went into heaven and then he said, wait now for the promise of the Father. And it's, it's quite intriguing to know that even as well trained as these Jewish minds were, they could not have really at that point understood how God was about to literally fulfill the Pentecost feast on the very day of Shavuot. They didn't know how long they'd be waiting for the promise of the Father, but the Father knew. And that pattern of God dealing mercifully with his people to prepare them to see the next open vista of the meaning of the feast is absolutely priceless for us today. And it's one of the reasons why I believe that we can say, as we kind of wrap together these loose ends to understand, that when the historian and beloved physician Luke records for all, for all of us that wondrous event, and when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and there came from heaven the sound of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them tongues of fire that sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. In that remarkable miracle, in the following verses, showing that God had miraculously poured out languages that, that the travelers, the pilgrims of Jewish descent, but living in parts of the of the Hellenistic world that had come to Jerusalem for the feast. They were hearing the wonders of God declared in their own native languages, in their home tongues. And God's splendor and glory was being shown not only in the visual sign, but in the audible preparation of the mind and heart for what Peter was about to preach. Well, Shavuot, of course, was the meaning behind prophetic statements of Isaiah and Joel about the great outpouring of, of God's water of life for all that were thirsty. And in the day of Pentecost, Peter then concludes this wonderful fact, anticipating for us that, that Christ Jesus is our peace, that he's removed the partition wall, making the two, in this case, Jew and Gentile, making them into one. And on the day of Pentecost, the church is birthed. I used to think, I think one year I preached that you might call Pentecost the church's birthday. Let's have a birthday party for the church. And one of the ways we can all do that is take to heart 
the beautiful invitation of the Shavuot for the believer. <laughs> Jesus explained it like this very quickly, these last couple of minutes. When he, the disciples, after he described the model prayer in Luke 11, disciples said, we, we, we want to understand how we can boldly make these requests. You know, you say, your kingdom come, your will be done. Jesus then uses an illustration of a father caring for his child. Of an easy illustration to understand. What father whose child says to you, or mother, uh, uh, I'm, I'm hungry, mom, is, uh, can, I have some, can I have an egg? So which of you would give them a, 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 an insect, a scorpion? Well, the answer, it's, a, it's an absurd question. The answer, of course not. Which of you, fathers, if your son or daughter asks you for something of value, of, of nutritional value, you'd give them their, the very best. You'd give them what they need. And then he says, you're just human. We're just human. Of varying degrees of, of, of virtue. More non-virtue than virtue. <laughs> he says, if you then, being evil, if you being human, humanly sinful creatures, if you would give good gifts to your children, here's the wonderful statement of Luke eleven thirteen, and it's true for each of us today on this Memorial Day weekend, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The simplicity of this invitation is that Jesus says in Shavuot, yes, yes, the work has been done. The first fruits have been waved before the Lord. Now in Shavuot, in Pentecost, God is launching a people who have confidence in the glory of his kingdom, but above all, they're thirsty to know him. That's what being filled with the Holy Spirit starts with. In fact, we're going to pray right now because, as the Word says, this promise is to you, to your children, to all that are afar off. And I want to invite you for a moment to think about this, you know, the fact that a feast was given with all these different details. Some of them seem so distant from us. But this feast was given to illustrate that you and I being filled with the Holy Spirit is of such great value in the eyes of God that He even had our Lord teach the disciples that it's as simple as a father or mother wanting to lovingly bless their son or daughter. And we come now, Heavenly Father, to the throne of grace to thank you that these promises embedded in these feasts truly can call us to make a joyful sound. We thank you that in the new birth, in accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior, that your Holy Spirit has come to dwell within us. And yet we are beckoned by the truth of real Pentecost, that you call us to yearn that Ephesians 5.18 be fulfilled in our lives, to be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, to be filled to overflowing, to continually being thirsty for the infilling and overflow of the Holy Spirit. If there's any way in your life where maybe, maybe you become aware, oh, I just, I don't know how to put it into words, Pastor, but I want more of what the Lord has for me. I want more of Him. I want the Holy Spirit. I want the infusion, this infilling, this overflow of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I realize it's not a, my life isn't static. My life is in motion. And so God Almighty meets me where I am and He promises the Shavuot. He promises the, the, the joyous infilling of the Holy Spirit for those who thirst. Thank you, Lord, as we go into a day and a, and a, a couple of days for many of change of schedule. 
May there be a restfulness, a deep, abiding, wondrous assurance that you've made this promise so that we can embrace it with all of our heart to be filled with your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.